0: I want to have over over the backyard over the fence talk with you this morning. I've been reading this book; it's just great. I recommend it to you. It's called The Road Less Traveled. It's by M. Scott Peck, who is a physician, who is uh, a a psychiatrist. Um, He's a scientist. Uh, A lot of this sermon comes out of that book this morning. If you read the book, you don't have to listen to the sermon. But if you're not going to read the book, listen closely to the sermon. I want to share with you today what I believe are the causes of failure. Why people fail. Now, I not only only believe this because I have read it someplace. A lot of these things I I observed a long time before I, I read them. But I think as I enumerate these things, you too will make a connection in your own life as to why people fail. First of all, I think people fail because they don't have a realistic view of what life is. Life is a series of problems. Now, I know that crushes some of you. It probably depresses some of you. But that's what life is. I had somebody come up to me a couple of weeks ago and say, Said, JC, and he's a close friend, so I could, you know, I could say this back to him. But he said, JC, my life lately has been one problem after another. And I looked at him and I said, What was it before that? That depressed him. Because that's basically what life is. Now you can clean that up a little. You can say, oh, it's a series of great challenges to be conquered and live victoriously. Yeah, that, that's all right. And if you, if you want to say it's a, it's a a it's a series of mysteries to be resolved, yeah, that's okay. You can say it like that too. But basically, just backyard talk over the fence to one another. It's one problem after another. If it's not one thing, it's another thing. And basically, we have the choice in this life as to whether or not to meet those problems head on and to resolve them as they arise or to try to hide from them. Now, if we are realistic, and if we recognize that life is one problem after another, then we are called upon to go through the pain and the suffering and the growth that it takes to resolve that particular problem. Where we get into trouble is that many people try not to recognize problems for what they are. They try to hide from problems. They try not to deal with problems with the hopes that problems will go away, but problems don't go away. And so where they find themselves is trapped by bigger problems than they had before, more complicated problems than they had before. Many people feel buried by life because they will not cope with the problems as they arise. There's a commercial on TV that I hate. I hate it every time it comes on. Some guy stares at me smugly and says something about my car and then looks at me and grins and says, pay me now or pay me later. I just want to wring the guy's neck when he says that. But you know what? He's right. That's how life is. You can pay the price now, or you can pay a larger price later. And as we learn to live responsibly, we will learn to meet the everyday problems as they arise, knowing that if we don't meet them as they arise, we're going to have a higher price to pay later on. Jesus said in the, uh, uh, when he was talking to the multitude in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Now, did he say that because there weren't going to be any problems for tomorrow? No. He said, don't worry about tomorrow because why? Because today has enough problems of its own. In other words, if we simply solve today's problems, they will not hit us on down the line. We will not have to worry about them tomorrow. Life is a series of problems. One thing after another. Another reason people fail is because they refuse to employ life's proven disciplines for coping. These are evident in the Bible. They are evident in our experience in life. And why we absolutely refuse to employ them is beyond. Well, it's not beyond me. It's because of laziness. Laziness is our main problem. I'll talk more about that in other sermons, but that is our main problem, laziness. But there are a few disciplines that I'd just like to present to you today as ways not to fail. First of all is the discipline of delaying gratification. We are a people who find it very difficult to delay gratification. When the Bible says to us the last shall be first, it's not just talking about if you make yourself a doormat for people, you'll have the highest place in heaven. It's talking about when you go about to set, to answer other people's needs, and then you find yourself answered at the last, you will have a higher degree of maturity and satisfaction than if you try to get your needs answered first. That's, a, that's what it's saying. It is saying simply delay your gratification because you will not have to worry then about others' needs, nor will you have to say, man, I've, I've just shot my wad. i got nothing left to look forward to here. You will live in anticipation of something good. When I was little, I had a friend, Blake Teach, and we, my my mother uh, said to me every day, you can have a Popsicle. That was my big prize of the day, I can have a Popsicle. I'm going to have one a day. My mother was also wise in saying, you can't eat in front of the kids. And she, was, she said to me, hey, don't bring it in the house. Don't come in and hide when you, have, when you want to have your Popsicle. You share it with your friend. So every day, Blake Teach and I would get together and we would have promised to us a half a Popsicle each. Now my mother also said, you can eat the Popsicle any time during the day you want to. If you want to eat it as dessert for breakfast, great. If you want to save it till the hottest part of the day, that's fine too. Blake Deach always had to have his Popsicle first thing every day. He'd show up at my house before anybody was up. Knocking on the door, saying, give me the popsicle now. I've got to have it. It could be the hottest day in July or August. He'd want that thing first thing in the morning. He'd still have eggs all over his lips and everything else. And he would go through the entire rest of the day saying, I can't believe I ate that popsicle. I got no. Can I have one of your popsicle? I mean, it's really hot out. If I had only saved my popsicle till now. He went through the entire part of the rest of the day, the the entire rest of the day, griping because he had shot his wild on a popsicle. How many of us assume that something will be great and we gobble it up and we say, gosh, is that all there is? I mean, it's over. I mean, it's gone. I mean, there's nothing else. Instead of anticipating a resource that we could have for the hottest part of the day when we need it most, delay of gratification. Those who are last shall be first. A second discipline, assuming appropriate responsibility. It seems like, and this is a general statement, but I'll make it anyhow and we'll go from here. Nobody today wants to assume responsibility, especially when it's everybody's job. There are two ways that we deny ourselves the obligation of assuming responsibility. One is by being neurotic, and the other one is by having a character disorder. Women are usually neurotic, men usually have character disorders. Now, I'll explain this to you. The neurotic person will say, will believe that everything is their responsibility. I mean, everything. If their friend has a problem, they They worry about it till they're nuts, saying I ought to be able to help her. There's something I got to be able to do. I've got to be able to come up with the answer. I ought to be able to resolve that. Don't you feel sorry for them? And the man will go, who are character disorder. Hey, that's not my problem. That's their problem. Don't bug me about it. They need their bed. Let them lay in it. (laughs) The women assume too much responsibility. Men have a tendency to assume no responsibility whatsoever for anybody but themselves and maybe their immediate family. Women think that everything is their fault. Men think that nothing is their fault. These are two extremes, two ways that we don't deal with appropriate responsibility. It is not your job to fix up everybody's life in this world. But neither is it your job to to ignore everybody's hurt. To not feel empathy for people. Jesus said when he lived in this world, can you drink of the cup from which I drink? In other words, can you live the life that I've lived? Take a look at the life of Jesus. What did he do? He didn't fix up the whole world while he was here. He didn't rush out to to solve everybody's problem. What he did was he helped out the people who came into his sphere of influence the best he he could. When people put themselves in his sphere of influence, he did what he could for them. He prayed for those people who did not put themselves in his sphere of influence. And then... He lived a life that he was called to live, hoping that others would benefit from it. He neither tried to fix up the whole world while he was here, nor did he try to ignore everybody's problem. He took appropriate responsibility. And when we try to cast responsibility on everybody else, or on a certain body, we will end up totally frustrated. We will end up failures. Because it's always their fault. I listened to an interesting person last week that uh, that talked about how we assume that all, everything wrong in this country is Congress's fault. And the answer Christians always have is, boy, if we could only elect Christians, ever, if only everybody in Congress was a Christian, then everything would be all fixed up. If the president was a Christian, the Supreme Court was a Christian, the, the House of Representatives were all Christians, the Senate were all Christians. This, this is a typical Christian answer. and, and boy, they go out in political movements and try to elect everybody to office so that they can be a Christian, and that will fix up the country. No, that will not fix up the country. This country will never get fixed up until I assume that it is my responsibility to live a responsible life as a citizen of the United States of America. Congress can't do that for me, and Congress can't do that for you. There is no way our government is going to make this country right. This country will never be right until the individuals who live in this country feel called upon to repent of their selfish ways and live in lives that are responsible and sharing and loving. That's the only way we're ever going to get fixed up as a country. I have people who come up in every once in a while and just hate the fact that this is a big church. And you get down to it and say, why do you hate big churches? Because they're so unfriendly. <laughs> I went out of that church and nobody spoke to me this morning. How many people did you speak to? Well, I'm a visitor. No, nah, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. We've got this waitress mentality. We expect people to come around and say, is everything all right? Is everything all right? You start tipping everybody 15%, they'll come around and ask you that. Yeah. It is our responsibility if we want friends to make friends. It is our responsibility if we want involvement to become involved. Nobody can do that for us. And we need to assume appropriate responsibility. We are adult people. We are made to serve. We are made to grow up. We cannot expect always to be served. The last one is we need to be dedicated to reality. We need to be dedicated to reality. The Bible says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We as Christians need to constantly be revising our outlook of how people are and how the world is. Somebody in seminary once told me, when you get up to preach, people aren't going to want to hear the truth. They're going to want to hear their own values confirmed. And I found that pretty much to be true. When I say something that you disagree with, it makes you mad. And I'm not a very good preacher. But when I say something you agree with, boy, that's preaching. See? We all are, are entrapped by outdated views of the world. Most of the mental illness in our country is due to the fact that people formed Views of life when they were children that were appropriate as children. And then they transferred those same views as they grew up. And they assumed that the world was like that. In other words, if they couldn't trust their parents when they were little, when they grew up, they believed that they couldn't trust anybody else either. And that's a lot of the ways in which we find ourselves imprisoned. Those are the ways that that bind us and won't let us go free. That whole dynamic of transference. And the church has been worse than anybody, you know, as far as uh, the ability to adapt to how the world really is. We really believe we're doing something religious if we defend God against godless, heathen science. Isn't that stupid? Don't you think the same God made the world that made the Bible? Ye shall know the truth. As you search for the truth, as you look at the world, the way the world actually is, you will find God. Or evidences of Him. You will not find things that that take your faith away from you. We don't have a forbidden list of books that you can never read because you'll learn too much. Because if you get smart, you won't be Christian anymore. The smarter you get, the more Christian you are. One of the things that really wipes me out, I'm really getting going this morning. How much time I got? <laughs> you ready for this? Let's just stay here all day. It's all right. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we'll have that next service join us, and we'll just keep going here. That, join us. In the program you're about to join is in progress. But listen, one of the things that really drives me nuts is the whole, kind of talk non-preacher? I never talk preacherly. Drives me nuts, is the whole thing about teaching creation along with evolution. Now, before I get started on this and you all start flying out of your pews, I believe, I believe in Adam and Eve. Hey, that story is, is truth to me, okay? But I do not believe that the theory of evolution is a godless plot, a humanist plot to overthrow Christianity. And I believe that unless the church loosens up enough, to see the evidence presented, it will lose its own credibility in the world. I believe it's absolutely ridiculous to divide science and religion. I believe that the very fact of evolution intimates the, that there is a creator. What is the second law of thermodynamics? Anybody? <laughs> now, <clears throat> That's okay, i tell you. <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics, as we observe the universe, is that there is a tendency or a force which, in which things go from a higher degree of organization to a lower degree of organization. From a higher degree of differentiation to a lower degree of differentiation. In other words, the second law of thermodynamics states that the entire universe is slowly, after a process of billions and billions of years, will slowly wind down into a meaningless, undifferentiated blob. Alright? Things tend not to get better, they tend to get worse, in other words. Alright? That's the second law of thermodynamics as viewed in the universe by science. That's simply the facts. What is the law of evolution? Evolution tells us that there is a force that is greater than the force of entropy. Greater than the force, the second law of thermodynamics that says that in This one planet, lost in a myriad of galaxies, there is something going on from lesser differentiation to higher differentiation, from lesser organization to greater organization. How can that happen in a universe that is slowly winding down unless there is some positive creative force that cares about a certain purpose. Why are we different? The church shouldn't run from evolution. It should capitalize on evolution. It shouldn't say that this tears our theories about God apart. It should say this proves our theories about God. When we look at the world as it really is, when we can revive our pictures to match reality, we're not worse Christians. We're better Christians. And the same thing goes as us as individuals. There there is so much in our lives that we we cling to as a matter of first impression. There are so many people in our lives that we would shut out. <clears throat> that we would tear down that we would criticize because they do not match some prerequisite of how we feel the church or the world should be this is especially harsh in the church there are ways that we will not prevent we will we will prevent ourselves from loving them we will not admit them into our intimate circles because we have a world view that is not realistic enough to know that that behavior or that kind of thinking goes on. And we have not revised our thinking to include those people, to include the reality of how they are or who they are. Why don't we do this? Why can't we delay gratification? Why can't we take appropriate responsibility? Why... Why is it that we have such a rough time adjusting our worldviews and constantly rethinking our opinions about how the world is or about who each other are? There's one answer. We don't want to grow up. The gospel calls us to grow up. But you see, kids don't have to grow up. Kids don't have to think. Kids can play. And they don't have to go through the work and the pain of revising themselves, of adjusting themselves, of being tolerant when it's no fun to be tolerant. Kids can throw tantrums. Kids can hide. It's more fun to be a kid than it is to be an adult. It's more fun to go to Never Never Land. We've all got the Peter Pan panacea. Everything will be all right. We can fly if we just think wonderful thoughts. The problem with that is, we can't. Wonderful thoughts are certainly the beginning. But sooner or later, we've got to accept the world as it is. And if we are to create anything of value in this world, we've got to grow up. We've got to delay our own gratification. We've got to assume our own responsibility. We've got to look at the world as it is, not as we wish it were. And then we've got to grow up in Christ and do the work of God. Then we'll be a success. conquer the promised land. And like all realistic things, uh, that was different than they had pictured it. There was a land flowing with milk and honey, but the Lord um, didn't remove all the enemies for them. Uh, The enemies were left for them to be responsible to remove on their own. So while the, the land was meant for them, and while it was the promised land, it was not an easy job of conquering it. And they conquered it by bit and piece. Uh, They conquered it incompletely. And so there were pockets of Israelites, 12 tribes of Israelites, living unto one another, but scattered all around and surrounding these Israelites. And living among the Israelites were the Canaanites, who were basically heathen people. They had they were polytheistic. They had lots of different religions and gods and so on and so forth. And what would happen is that they lived among the Israelites until the Israelites, or they lived among the Israelites, and the Israelites would start to assimilate their religions along with worshiping Jehovah God. They would take their religions and, and, and either mix it in with Judaism or worship it as a religion in addition to their own. That was sin. And what would happen then is that they would become weakened. They would become open to things that they ought not to become open to. And, the God, and then they would be conquered by other nations. And when they were conquered by other nations, they took this conquering to be a sign from God that they had indeed turned from their faith And so they would repent. In other words, they would turn around. That's what repent means. It means change behavior. Turn around and go home. And they would turn around and they would go back to God and they would call on God for a deliverer. They would stop practicing these heathen religions. They would call on God for a deliverer. And God would send them a leader. And these leaders were called judges. There were lots of different judges for different periods. You know, this is a whole string of... of of uh, events it's not just one event they would turn away they would repent they would call for a leader and god would send them a judge and the judge would deliver them and he would he or she there were women judges also he or she would see to it that they were then worshiping god again but then they would go out and they would assimilate the ways of the world again and then they would fall into sin again and turn away from god and they would you know, get conquered, and then they would ask for deliverance, and God would send another leader, and they'd get delivered. So it just happened like this. All right? One particular judge is, is is the one that we're studying today. It's one that many stories have been told around. Kids are absolutely fascinated with this figure in biblical history. But as we read about him, we will learn that he was not all a good guy. As a matter of fact, Samson was a guy with a typical jock mentality. Um, he did not have the maturity. Uh, he had muscles between his ears a lot of times. He was, he was a carnal person. Uh, God had predestined him. This is a good way to think of predestination. Predestined him to be a judge. But his whole life was kind of wavering before, back and forth, whether or not he was going to be God's judge or whether he was going to be a carnal person uh, uh, consuming all the passions of the world. And even though he was predestined for a certain uh, role in God's world, he only partially fulfilled it. He ended up being a prisoner. So let's turn to the study sheet. I've given you a lot more than the usual synopsis because I wanted you to get this in the context with other, with other things. First of all, let's turn to Numbers six, two twenty-one, and let's read together. What we're talking about: uh, uh, the law for a Nazarite. All right. Numbers is the. Genesis. Numbers, fourth book in the Bible. Chapter six. Say to the people of Israel, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink shall not drink any uh, juice of grapes, or eat grapes, or fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. All of the days of his vow of separation no razor shall come upon his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Now remember that one. Neither for his father nor his mother nor for his brother nor his sister, if they die, he shall make himself unclean, because his separation to God is upon his head. All the days of his separation is holy to the Lord. In other words, if his family died, they could not go near their body. He could not go near their body. He could not attend the funeral or anything else. He is separated unto the living. And when Jesus said, um, um, when he was talking about following him, and there was a man who wanted to follow him, but his mother had just died, and he said, Well, or father just died, he said, Well, let me go bury him. Jesus turned to him and said, Let the dead bury the dead. In other words, he was giving him the same kind of vow, same kind of holy mission that a Nazarite had, and it was not without some background that he said that. If any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then she, he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two tur- turtle doves, two uh, pigeons, to the priest to the door of the tent of meeting. At the door of the tent of meeting was the was the uh, the worship space that they had. That was where. The Lord would come down. It was kind of a temporary tabernacle or a movable, mobile tabernacle. And the Lord would come down and meet the religious leader there. So they called it the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer for one sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of a dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb over uh, a year old for a guilt offering, but the former time shall be void because of his separation was defiled. This is the law of the Nazarite. When the the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the door of the tent of meeting, and he shall offer his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, so on and so forth. Um, There are different offerings. And the priest shall separate them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and bird offering, he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice, so on and so forth. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the, uh, at the door of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice for the peace, peace offering, and so on and so forth. All right? Now, what happens then after that is that he goes through a period of separation and his hair grows back. And again, because he has been separated long enough, he can then clearly see his vow again, separated from the world, and he can go ahead and fulfill those requirements. Now, all of these have to do with Samson and the story of Samson, or we would not have read them. I want you to know when we go along reading the story that it has this kind of background. Now, turn to Judges 13. Many times in Scripture, when a special child is going to be born that has a special function, uh, an apparition will appear to the mother. Um, um, and there's a, there's a feeling about this person that they are going to be special. This was a very clear thing. The Lord revealed to Samson's mother, and, and a lot of times in the Bible, these people have, have heretofore been unable to bear children, which makes them even more special. But... Uh, there was, there was a very, there was a very clear and concrete uh, uh, apparition to Samson's mother that she was going to bear a child, a male child, and he would be a Nazarite priest. Therefore, she was not to uh, drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her to, to observe, and so on and so forth. This is what I call a parental purity principle. We have studied it before, but it's important that we differentiate this from the Israelite purity principle. There's a such a, there, there is a principle that where you, you separate yourself from an unclean thing in order to keep intact what is to be separate to God. This is different. What God says to us as parents is that we must prepare for our children before they are even conscious. We must purify ourselves to them in a special way if we expect them to fulfill their destiny. There are many of us who say, let's never talk about this in front of the kids. Or let's never act this way in front of the kids. Or we will... Um, explain to our children when they get old enough to understand now, mommy and daddy do this but this is not for kids to do this is just for mommy and daddies to do um, uh, there are some of us who uh, have have continued in certain kinds of behavior that we would never want our kids to continue in uh, My my mother was a three pack a day smoker and she said don't ever smoke as she lit one up, don't ever smoke. It's terrible for you. It's bad for you. It'll give you lung cancer. I knew all that kind of stuff. And as soon as I got to college, I was a, I smoked all the time. Smoked like a chimney. I hated it. It almost killed me. I just, I coughed all the time. I had been an athlete in high school. Uh, I lost all my conditioning and all that kind of stuff. And my mother had warned me about it. And I'd come home and I'd want to smoke. She said, you can't smoke in this house. I told you never to smoke. But that's what I connected adulthood with. Growing up is being able to smoke. Because that's what I saw her do. Kids are basically imitators. They are not learners. They are imitators. And what God was trying to say to this Israelite mother was that you must precondition yourself, even beyond the consciousness of your child, if you are to be the kind of model for that child that he needs to have. We need to not do anything in our lives that we would not be able to share with our children and say to them, okay, when you're of age, I want you to be able to do this also. We, not, we need not to be able to do anything in our lives that is not like that. And that means doing it not on the sly. That means not doing it ever. Okay. Secondly, in other words, God wants our behavior to match our dreams for our children. God wants your behavior to match your dreams for your children. Secondly, there was an angel that came by and they didn't recognize it as an, as an angel. Didn't recognize him as an angel at first. And, and and this happens a lot of times. God comes to us unaware. That is, when you the more sophisticated you become spiritually, the more you will be able to discern the visitation of God. God visits you all the time. He really do you know that? He visits you all the time. He speaks to you constantly. The difference between someone who is mature spiritually and immature spiritually is that the immature spiritual person has to have some sort of catac- cataclysmic event in order to connect it with God. The mature spiritual person will recognize God upon the visitation. Well, anyhow, so the angel comes and, uh, is that, what well, is the heat on? Is it? Are you guys hot? You're not? <laughs> I'm going through the change. <laughs> oh, it's happened so soon. Anyhow, um, what, what God wants us to recognize is that, or no, uh, when God visits us, uh, we, we don't recognize it. But an angel visited them. They didn't recognize it, and so they offered him a meal. And what he said, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. Because he said, I will not eat of your food. If you make ready a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. All right. The difference, again, between an immature person or a civilized person and an angel of the Lord is that an angel of the Lord or the most mature spiritual person will take what is offered to them and make it an offering to the Lord somehow. They will make whatever is offered to them beneficial to the Lord. That is a constant contest of spiritually mature mature people. In other words, in your everyday world, in your everyday world, what is offered to you is really meant, should be an offering to the Lord. Right? Because all that we have and all that we are and all that we've learned and all that we can do is because God has made us able to have that and be that and do that so really he deserves the credit now here's the contest to you how can you take what is offered to you every day and turn that into a benefit for god that is a constant contest how can you take whatever is offered to you during the day and turn that into a benefit for god okay the road to spiritual maturity Now, let's go down to 14.3 and take a good look at Samson. Samson, as for all people who are born strong, had trouble differentiating his desires from what the Lord wanted him to have. The first thing he wanted was a Canaanite woman. Now, the whole reason that God sent Samson to these Israelite people was to extract them and to make them holy again unto him. So Samson goes down there, and all of a sudden he wants to marry a Canaanite. Why? Because she pleases me well. He didn't even know her. It was a sexual thing. That's the only thing he could, he was attracted to her sexually. He wanted to have her sexually. So that was the level on which Samson was operating. Those called of God have much to overcome. When you feel yourself called of God, you're going to feel yourself torn between what attracts you on a very basic animal level and what you know to be good for you and to be good for your mission here. Samson, all the way through this, chose the carnal way. When you read this, He keeps going back and back and back to the carnal way. And even the things that that we don't see right offhand when reading the Bible are really evidence of his carnality. Let's go down to the next one. He killed a lion, just tore it in half. Now, let me just insert here, uh, you can tell the climate of this because bees would not go to a, a carcass of a lion that was putrid, that was dead and, and uh, you know, began to rot and all that kind of stuff. The climate is extremely dry, and it has dried the carcass out so that bees built a hive in its mouth. Samson comes by, and he sees this honey in the mouth of the lion. Now remember a Nazarite vow, never to go near a dead thing. But Samson sees this honey in this this lion's mouth. He takes the honey out of that. Out of that mouth. He eats some of the honey. And not only that. Scraped it into his hands and went on. Eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother. And gave some to them. And they ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey. From the carcass of the lion. Now. Now. You see the kind of personality Samson has here. He has a personality that is doing what pleases him, but is not living up to the full truth. The reason he didn't tell his father and his mother that he had gotten honey out of a dead lion is because they would have bawled him out. He didn't want to face up to the pain of what he had done wrong. Therefore, there are a hundred little sins building up in his life he is not facing the pain of repentance to them yet. He even makes a, 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 a riddle out of it and plays a game with his fellows at his wedding. And then what happens is he gets so mad at his wedding, at his wife, you know, he got a Canaanite wife, he got just what he bargained for, she made the secret known, he storms out without consummating the marriage. Uses his temper, gets out there, gets a little lonely, comes back. By the time he comes back, his or her father has given her to what the Bible terms as as your companion. What it really means is your best man. I have given this this woman to your best man, but you can have my younger daughter. Look how he, you can have my. She's better looking anyhow. Um. So what Samson does is goes and catches 300 foxes, or really they're jackals. They're not foxes. Uh, uh, there's kind of a, they don't have American foxes over there. They're jackals, and he ties uh, fire to the tail ter- and burns the whole thing up. You know, he burns all of the crops up. Well, the the enemy comes, and because their crop is burned up, they burn this woman and her father. There's no Repugnance in here. There's no mention of Samson weeping or being hurt or anything else. He's just gotten his revenged, revenge. He's satisfied with it. Okay. Then, in 15, the Philistines go after Samson. And they come to a, another Israelite tribe. Then the Philistines came and encamped in Judah. Judah is another tribe of Israel. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come against us? And they said, We have come up to uh, bind Samson to to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to, uh, to them. And they said to him, we have come down to you that we may give you into the hands of Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. In other words, I have enough decency that I don't want to hurt other Israelites, brothers and sisters in the faith. Um, And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him from the rock and so on and so forth. Okay. So you get the picture here of the absolute degradation God has sent this man to save all of Israel. Instead, what happens is, one tribe is divided against another tribe. One tribe is delivering their own deliverer into the hands of the enemies because of the carnality of their deliverer. Well, Samson beats up on all the Philistines and all of that kind of stuff. But there's a modern-day parable to all of this. And that is in the fighting that churches do among themselves. Churches, in a lot of ways, are living as the Israelites, as the tribes lived in the land of Canaan. We are living in the promised land. Uh, There's every kind of, of possibility out there to bring the kingdom of God into this promised land. But rather what we do as churches is we, go, we, we bicker among one another as to who's got the best church. And we turn against one another instead of supporting one another and binding together in the name of Christ in order to be delivered from a culture that would tear us down. Uh, it happens over and over again. And I think what we need to do is call on God for deliverance from that, just like the Israelites did from the Philistines. Okay, so then he meets Delilah, who, it never says this in the scripture, but you assume that she is another Philistine. Um, and, and she says, tell me wherein your great strength lies. Now, here's another spiritual principle. When, God, when people want to know where your strength comes from, you as a Christian have the choice. At that moment, you can either indulge yourself and say, gee, I don't know, I'm just lucky, I guess. I It really took me a lot of work to perfect this, but... Well, I'm just gifted. I mean, I get the right genes, and or you can be real humble about it, you can say, uh, gee, I just came to the right place at the right time, and, and uh, um, you know, the circumstances were right. I'm sure anybody in my circumstance could do this, although nobody has. But, you know, it's just one of those things, I... It's it's just me. You can do all of that. Or you can say two words from God. You can give God the honor for your strength. That's what he wants you to do. If you give God the honor for your strength, they can't take it away from you. Nobody can take that away from you. God won't take it away from you. But if you really believe that your strength lies in the symbols of your strength. That is, if you believe that your strength lies in your strong family relationship, or your good work record, or your ability to maintain and, and organize facts so that you can produce much in this world, all of those symbols of your strength. And somebody asks, where do you get your strength from? And this is where you get your strength from. You are playing into an area that can be taken away from you. Not that God would take that away from you, but it is an area not of strength, but of temporary symbolism of what God has given to you. Samson just needed to look at the lion and say, God, tell me wherein your strength lies. God, that would have been the end of the matter. But he played a game. He played a game with her and this was one of those you've been in relationships I'm sure one of those lover's relationships where you kind of tease each other and then you make up you get into a, you know, he wasn't doing this, folks, to test her out, I mean even Samson was smart enough to know what was going on, he was doing it so that he could get something out of that relationship, so that they could make up it was so much fun to make up but finally he told her and uh, and Because of that, the next thing happened. Samson goes, and this is one of the most pitiful scriptures in all the Bible. Judges 16, 20. One of the most pitiful scriptures in all the Bible. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And he did not know the Lord had left him. Isn't that pitiful? There's a human tendency to assume permanence. There's a human tendency to assume permanence. That is, you become dependent upon the symbols of what God has given you, the symbols of God's love, and you attach the same permanence to those symbols as you do to God's love. And those symbols aren't permanent at all. Those symbols at any given time can be taken away from you, and you're shocked when they are. He was shocked. He assumed that he would always have that strength, no matter what he did, because he assumed correctly that he would always have God's love. The two are not indivisible. What we have in this world are only symbols, and we cannot attach permanence to our circumstantial symbols of God's love for us. In James 4, four 13, 15. Let's just turn back there for a minute. I won't be talking much longer, but I, I, this is a really important scripture. And I want to read to you out of the James, where I got, there, there it was. It's near the back. Four thirteen to 15. It says, come now, You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. Whereas you do not know about tomorrow. Okay? You do not know about tomorrow. Let those words burn into your mind so that you don't live on false security. You do not know about tomorrow. Now you know that at the the very basis of, of your being, don't you? And we use that as an excuse a lot of times, especially when we're starting on a Pony Express drive and people are giving, will, will be giving their estimates in the next couple of weeks, and the first thing they're going to say to themselves, so, gee, I don't know, you know, in this economy, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do, da-da, da-da, da-da. So we know that at the basis, and we're glad to use that as an excuse. But why not use it as a basis for dependence on God? You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. Okay? So there's a human tendency to assume permanence. We can assume permanence on the love of God, we cannot assume permanence on the symbols of that love. The spiritual principle here is that God's strength is not to be divided from his purpose. I will go out as at other times, that's the human tendency, and he did not know the Lord had left him. That is the spiritual principle God's strength is not to be divided from his purpose. We cannot call upon God to do something that is not in accordance with his purpose. And there is only so long that we can live not in accordance with God's purpose and have any strength from him at all. God would not give us something in order that we destroy ourselves with it. He does not give us enough strength to destroy ourselves with it. Therefore, as we become more and more separated from the purpose of God, we will find the strength and the clarity with which we live our lives ebbing away. The more carnal we are, the more separated from the Spirit of God, the more our powerlessness, our frustration, our confusion, all of the things in this world that makes for a rough life, those will come to us. Because God does not give his strength to us in order that we destroy ourselves. By the same token, if we live in the spirit, we have enough strength and power to do anything that is in God's will for our lives. The last point is, but it began to grow again, the symbols of God's power after Samson had been humiliated, the symbols of God's power began to come back to him. And he began to to regain strength. Can you imagine every day, for as long as it would take your hair to grow long, walking around and around and around a mill, grinding stone, wondering how it happened that Someone who had, before he was born, been designed by God to be a great leader of people, now found himself to be in a stinky dungeon, blind, doing something that was designed for a donkey to do? Can you imagine how much time he had to repent? How much time he had to get back into the will of God? how much time he had to accept again the call of God. This is the greatest hope all of us have. There isn't anything that we can do that will release us from the call of God. Once God places a call on your life, it will always be there. That's what predestined means. You who have trouble with predestination, it's not fatalism. It's not like you don't have a choice. Predestined means you were pre-designed to do something. And once God places a call on your life, that call will never leave you. Therefore, it is always something that you can go back to. But by the same token, it is something that will haunt you if you do not live up to it. It will cause you tremendous unrest. It will not let you live in peace Unless you come into the path that God designed you to come into. Those are hard words, I know. But they're true. Because that's what the Bible says. Okay, any questions? Am I depressing you for Christmas? It's really really words of great hope. We're all called to find out what God has designed us for. And I hope that's what we do from now on. Let's stand for a moment of prayer, shall we? Father, now we ask your blessings upon your word. Help the word sown today to grow and be fruitful. Help any discomfort that was felt today be a genesis for an initiative for new growth and new strength and realignment to your will and lord now bless the worship services that people might be filled full of your spirit in jesus name amen